As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me for another Americans Abroad recap is an American who is not abroad. It's Joseph Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. You're making me a little sad because we can't travel, or or we really shouldn't be traveling out of the country and all of that. But uh, I I am not abroad, and I think that is fitting for what we're here to talk about today, (laughs) just in reverse. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, No traveling for us, lots of traveling for lots of Americans uh, currently. I will not say plying their trade. I will just say playing in Europe. Uh, We've got (laughs) 10 or so players we're going to talk about, but... We're, I think Joe and I were both a little bit hesitant to give the view behind the curtain to have the kind of same conversations over and over and over again about like, yep, like Tyler Adams did that. Like Gio Reyna is still good on the ball. So what we wanted to do was maybe get down into some specifics, get into some details a little bit and look at like specific moments that stood out to us from different performances from around Europe. Is, is that a fair summary of what we're doing today, Joe? That is a great summary. Also, do you have a problem with plier trade? Is that a, a verbal crutch or, or where are we at on that? Uh, it, it's, it's an easy one when you are writing like a player summary. They're, oh, they're, yeah. It's one so of those cliche. certain ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a well organized yeah. defense. He plies his trade abroad. <laughs> all the, all those sort of things. There's, there's a few yeah. of them. The, uh, the soccer cliches as they, as they are. Well, I respect you for steering away of them. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. well played on that one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, since I have done a little bit of rambling, Joe, why don't you get us started? Which player uh, are we going to be talking about first? So the first player, and this just feels right to me, that we're going to get into today is Matthew Hoppy, And we Ooh. know how to pronounce his name. You said it beautifully on the weekend review yesterday with Ryan and Graham. Matthew Hoppy, if somehow you missed it out there, listeners in listener land, Matthew Hoppy scored a hat trick. He's 19 years old, and he scored a hat trick in Schalke's 4-0 win over Hoffenheim. And in the way we're doing this show, Taylor, is you and I are going to, and we're going to pick specific moments and specific things that we saw from the players that we're going to talk about and use the the one moment in time in the game as an excuse to talk about why we picked that moment mm-hmm. and, and maybe some more general topics about the player. And in my moment for Matthew Hoppy, and I invite you to join me and, and maybe have your own moment on this one or just riff off of mine, it's his third goal in this game. Because that third goal in the thir- in the 63rd minute, excuse me, sealed his hat trick, and he became the third American to ever score a hat trick in Europe's top five leagues and the first American 
to ever score a hat trick in the Bundesliga. That is why, Taylor, I picked the 63rd minute goal from Matthew Hoppe as my moment from him in this game. So at first, I'm surprised by that. Like, even having maybe heard that, I think I didn't internalize it to the extent of that he's the first one. But then you look at the other Americans who've been in the Bundesliga, I guess maybe you would have thought Pulisic or, uh, like, Reina could have come close. But it, it makes me happy to know that uh, if it was going to be somebody, it's Hoppy. That was not meant to be a pun. Uh, and it makes <laughs> me happy that it was Schalke getting a win as well. It was Schalke getting a win for their, I think they're, they broke a 30 match un, uh, winless streak, excuse me, yeah. unbeaten and winless are not the same thing. <laughs> and, and Hoppy was a huge part of it, not just because yeah. he scored the three goals, but because of how he scored the goals. He and Harit teamed up and became this sort of Batman and Robin. I'll leave it up to listeners to decide who's Batman and who's Robin. Uh, I think my my gut says Harit is actually Batman, but that's another discussion for another time. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Oh like, man, like it Robin is. assists a lot. He like he like is the auxiliary figure. He helps out. He makes things happen on occasion. But then Batman actually follows through. So I don't know that like three assists for Harit, but then he gets his own goal. It's a tough one. Maybe they're half and half. Maybe this. <laughs> I'll, I'll go half half and half. Bat Batten and, and <laughs> Robman. Nah, nah. We're gonna leave that. But but it's how Hoppy scores these goals, not just the the third goal, but really all three. All three of them involved great timing with his off-ball movement. They all three involved great composure in front of goal. Th- those, con- those components to each of his goals in this game were there. They were there almost throughout the entire game. Even when he wasn't getting on the ball, Hoppy was always looking to run almost parallel to the opposing back line. And he'd run and run sideways almost, almost perpendicular to, to where you think he would want to be going. But then he'd look for a gap between two opposing Hoffenheim defenders and he'd turn upfield and run through that gap. And he did that throughout the match and he did that really on all three of his goals and, and maybe sometimes less exaggerated than what I just described. But his continuous uh, looking and scanning for space in behind the back line and his ability to time his run and stay onside so that he could get on the end of Harit's really well-weighted through balls and then get on the ball and chip the goalkeeper or take a touch around the goalkeeper or finish well with his left and right. I mean, he did a lot of great things off the ball and, and kind of had that great poacher's performance that you want from a number nine. Yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there that it's like sometimes when it's an American scoring a goal or like I, I have a vague memory of Pulisic's hat trick with Chelsea that at least one of them was like fortunate or was kind of right place, right time. And I did expect at least one of these, having not seen them live, but going and watching the, the game afterward, I did expect there to be one like, oh, somebody squared it to him and he tapped it in or like it was a scramble and he toe poked at home that all of them are just well taken goals from start to finish there. As you said, smart, well-timed runs, but then he he kind of does different things each time, which probably throws off the goalkeeper a little bit, but also shows that he's able to evaluate the situation on the fly and has the confidence in his technical ability to then pull off some of those things he tried, especially that first goal, like just like the little ding to chip over top. It was so pretty. It made me so happy. Uh, and again, I'm I'm treading very closely to happy and hoppy and that's not what I mean to be doing but I just I I'm with you that like I kept looking for like oh okay that was mostly Harit like Harit did this or maybe this happened and instead it was just like he yes I mean Harit drives at defenders and pulls them out and then opens up space but you have to attack that space you have to make something of it and I think that's exactly what Matthew Hoppy did on all three occasions 100% their their ability to play together in this game was was downright awesome to watch. It's it's so much fun for me to watch a playmaker in a soccer game go out and control the game. And I think Harit did that in transition for Schalke. 
And that's enhanced that that playmaking that playmaking ability is enhanced by having a number nine who's making the right runs, who's finding space in the box or finding space in transition and getting on the end of those through balls. And that's what Hoppy did with Harit in this game. It was so much fun to watch. And before we move on to to other yeah. players, because I know we've got a lot of others to talk about. Well, I, I want to give just you, a so. oh perfect. <laughs> We're be well, before you hit me with that question, yeah. I want to give a, a brief scouting report on Matthew Hoppy Please. because. We can look at the stats and see that he scored three goals in this game. We can look at the stats and see that he played, you know, X number of minutes, whatever it is. But my overwhelming sense from, from Twitter and from people that I've talked to is that a lot of, a lot of folks out there aren't super familiar with Hoppy's game. They don't really know much about him or where he came from or what he does on the field other than score goals, apparently now. Hmm. And so I want to give a, a little brief rundown here. Hoppy is right footed. So he's, he's primarily right footed, although he can use his left and his head to get shots on goal. He's not much on the ball right now. And I think we could see that in this game with how often he he tried to break in behind Hoffenheim's back line. He's not dropping in. He's not coming into the midfield, partly because Schalke don't ask him to do that, but also because I think Hoppy is much more comfortable facing forward and looking at goal and getting a shot on goal. So he's right-footed. He likes to get in behind the back line, but he's not especially fast. He's not a lightning speed kind of guy. He's He's pretty average in terms of his athleticism, as far as I can tell. But he's got really good spatial awareness, and that, for me, is one of the biggest things. He's got good timing, which we've already talked about, but he also has an ability to scan the box and see where the defenders are, find little pockets of space, and wait in those pockets, or, or make a darting run and then pull back so that he can have space. So he can he can both exploit space in the box and create space for himself in the box. A lot of those attributes, yes, we're still in the early stages of watching Matthew Hoppy, but a lot of those attributes are really good things that pretty much any coach wants from their number nine, and I think we're seeing we're seeing glimpses of a lot of those skills from Matthew Hoppy. So I did find myself when I was watching my players thinking about what Burhalter wants, how he wants his team to play, and if these players complement that or if there's things they need to work on. And I think to your point, Hoppy has a lot of things that I think Burhalter would be very excited about, would would fit the system pretty well. The joke has been like like is he gonna win the twenty twenty two World Cup or the twenty twenty six World Cup? When does he win the Ballon d'Or? Like uh, all, all of these types of questions, some of which I have joked myself. Like I, I will ask you sincerely, Joe, and it is fair for you to say, like, it's just too early to know. Like, where do we put him? Do we put him in the conversation for the U.S. national team right now? Do, like, where is he in the depth chart? Or do we just need to hold off a little bit to see more from him, to see more of what he offers? Because, like, full disclosure, when I had Manuel Vaith on the show, like, I guess two weeks ago now, uh, I asked him, like, before we started recording, have you seen much of Matthew Hoppe? And he's like, no, he's played, like, three minutes. Like, no, I don't know. Like, so it's it's still he's so new to the conversation that I don't want to jump to conclusions but I also don't not want to talk about a sort of obvious point. I think we can do I think we can do two things here. I think we can talk about where he fits in the depth chart right now. And I think we can also talk about how his skills might position him in the depth chart down the line. And so to get to the first part of that, the first piece that I said, I don't think Matthew Hoppy really is in the depth chart right now. I don't think he yeah. needs to be in that discussion. After I think this is his second or third start of the Bundesliga season, he's just now kind of making the transition into Schalke's first team because they've been just so awful. He's getting a look, and, and he was effective. Granted, over the weekend, he was very, very effective. But for me, it's it's too early for us to talk about him in in terms of, does he does he play over Josh Sargent? Does he play over Josie Altidore? I mean, it's a lot of those questions that I just don't think we need to be asking quite yet. But the questions mm-hmm. that I'm really interested in asking is is the other one that you kind of posed to me, Taylor, is, is his skill set and how that fits within what Berhalter wants his number nine to do. And in the number nine's a tricky spot right now because we've seen Berhalter use it in a couple of different ways. We've seen Sebastian Legette play as a number nine, 
and be that super, super dropping deep false nine kind of player. We've seen Nico Joachini play as that number nine, and he's almost a hybrid between dropping in and staying high. We've seen Jossie Zardes play as a number nine, and he's not as fit to drop in, even though he was being asked to do that. I think Baralta would be better served to have Jossie Zardes running by, running behind the opposing back line. Hoppy, for me, fits in, in more of the Jossie Zardes mold, just minus the athleticism a little bit. He doesn't have the desire, from what I've seen so far, that could change, to drop in and connect play and overload midfield and help the, the three central midfielders for the United States really control the game in those spaces. Hoppy's more inclined to run in behind the back line and try to make things happen in and around the box. And I totally think Berhalter can use that. I just think that might be a little bit further down the line. So what I'm hearing from you then, with all of that intelligent uh, points being raised, would be 2026 World Cup more likely that he wins? Oh, yeah. No, okay. 100%. 2026 all the way. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, cool. <laughs> I'm glad we've landed that on a realistic note. I'm going to take us to a player we have not talked about. I don't believe you and I have ever talked about. Alan Senora, 22-year-old central midfielder Ooh. for Independiente in Argentina. Uh, his brother, Joel, is also playing in Argentina. He's 24. So both of them still very much uh, part of the conversation or could be part of the conversation. Um, I was not as familiar with him, but it's a player that we – get like questions about we'll get tweets about we'll see little things about here and there so i wanted to see what he was doing for independiente uh who did beat river plate this weekend 2-0 a a positive result there uh and senora started in the number 10 spot in a 4-2-3-1 roughly uh when it was a more like defensive 4-4-2 he dropped in usually on one of the wings as like like, think of like the atletico madrid style of a 4-4-2 where it's very compact and everybody's moving a lot that seemed to be how they were defending it seemed to be causing a lot of problems but the moments I want to focus on, there's two little ones. Uh, they're in the second half. It's weird. The the I think the clock that I saw counts up for the second half, but starts at zero. So 9.30 in the second half and 11.14 in the second half were just him. He's a left-footed player, but it was just very clean passing. It was very crisp passing. Like, no nonsense would be the other way to put it. And sometimes that can just be like, oh, you want a little bit more from your midfield. You want them to to be more aggressive, more attacking, more confident. And it's not to say that he wasn't. It's just that he he seems to make his decisions very, very quickly and then execute as a result. So it's not three and four touches. It's not sort of slaloming dribbles into the corner away from his teammates. It's quick little chip passes. Uh, the, that's what the first one is. It's just a little lifted pass over a defender into space for a teammate to run onto. The other one that I mentioned is a like it's a wall pass and then I think he does it first time when he receives it he takes a touch and then like pings a 40 yard bending ball into a teammate on the opposite side of the field to attack the space and just that sort of decision making the quickness with which he plays I don't know if it's necessarily that the Argentinian league is just maybe not big on pressing not that like big on like uh, a lot of aggressive running when it comes to defense but he seemed very quick in his decision making I think if we were looking at him from a U.S. national team standpoint like maybe as a like deputy replacement possibility for the like the other number eight spot usually occupied by Weston McKinney I would say that seems like a role he could do based on my limited observation from him in this game and I was going to ask do you see him more as a central player knowing what we know about Greg mm-hmm. Berhalter's national team or That's do you see question. him wider and I think it's interesting you, I mean, it seems like you, you see him more centrally, and that, that makes sense, right? He's playing as an attacking midfielder in this game mm-hmm. from what you said, drifting wide and moving wide, obviously, like yeah. you do as that number 10 in a 4-2-3-1. My, my other question for you then, you are kind of already addressed his, his potential positional fit mm-hmm. with the national team. 
How does he, how did, how did he look in that game? Did he look like he was one of the better players for Independiente versus River Plate? Was he, was he a standout on the field or did you kind of only notice him because you were watching for him? Probably the last one. Uh, but, but I don't think it's a combination of like, I was watching for him. So I think he stood out because of that, obviously. But I also think he stood out. I emphasize the decision making and, and the quickness of it because that is a reason why then I started to notice that as a trend when watching him, that he would take one and two touches to keep the ball moving. Whereas I saw his teammates sort of consistently, especially in the midfield, taking way more touches and routinely getting robbed of possession, a defender dropping back and just poking the ball away, or they would dribble into the corner and sort of box themselves in. He didn't do that. And so he did stand up because he just kept the ball moving and like, I can't think of a good example of it, but it's like a, it's a very, not trying to draw a comparison here to say they're the same, but it's a very like Sergio Busquets thing of if everybody is kind of moving frantically and they're trying to open up space and then he'll just calmly with like one touch play a ball 30 yards out wide into space and all, all of a sudden all the pressure is eased. Like that was sort of the pass that I kept seeing from him was just a lot of like, nope, we're resetting. Nope, I'm playing it wide. No, I'm playing it to this person who's wide open. We're not going to force things. We're not going to try silly things. We're not going to get caught in possession. I only saw him, I think, fail to complete one or two passes. I think maybe he got caught on the ball once, but given that every other teammate seemed to get caught on the ball four or five times, I'm going to say that was a good ratio. And I think, I think the ability to play quickly and get the ball out from under your feet it's such an underrated skill. When yeah. I watch games, when I watch Major League Soccer, I watch USL here in the United States, I see, and this isn't just an American problem. This is all over the world when you're not playing with necessarily top quality elite players. Mm-hmm. The ball sticks. The ball sticks and you take an extra touch and maybe another touch when you don't need to. And you'd be better served advancing the ball or driving it forward and doing something proactive with the ball. But instead, I'll see players, and I, I'm sure you notice this as well, see players just hold on to the ball for a little bit too long. And so when you're talking about Alan Senora, that's a really encouraging thing. And I think that's yeah. a good habit as a still a younger player. He's 22, right? This is a good skill that he has. And if he's able to move the ball out from under his feet, move play forward, have that creative passing ability, or at least some of that, yeah. that's a real asset. And that's something to watch for as we monitor Alan Sonora moving forward. Yeah, I mean, and again, he's 22, so plenty of time. We haven't, as far as I know, heard much of Berhalter looking at him, calling him in, anything like that. I would say my final thing would be I have criticized Christian Roldan a lot, but like it, I would say think of him – like not to say they're the same player again. I don't want to like limit Senor. I don't want to limit uh, uh, Roldan either. But it's that sort of like is going to keep the ball moving. Is maybe not going to be the one to go on a dribble and open up a defense. He's not going to like pull people apart. But you kind of know what you're getting. It's going to be steady. That seems to be what Senora is, at least for Independiente and possibly for the national team. So that is my that is my report on Alan Senora. And there's value in that, right? I, sure. I think I've said value a couple times now. <laughs> but having depth options in those central midfield spots, that's that is impossible to look at as anything other than a good thing. And so I appreciate your your report there, Taylor. My pleasure, my friend. Well, we've done two players. We've got many more to discuss. Uh, but in terms of value, let's talk about today's <laughs> sponsor. Let's start well with... This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
well front. No one is great at something the first time they try it. That is definitely true. I tried to make rye bread for the first time this week. It did not go well. If you're unfamiliar with investing, that's a little bit harder. Getting started can be intimidating. Wealthfront does the work for you so you can invest like an expert from the beginning. We've got tons more Wealthfront uh, to talk about, but I also tried to make bread this weekend and it, uh, it did not go great. Right. Uh, there was bread at the end, I would argue, yep. but I have seen it done better. And so Wealthfront is really onto something here. I'm not great at anything the first time I try it, especially not breaking bread. And I'm, I'm bake, baking bread, baking bread. Wow, I'm struggling. I think Wealthfront is really and truly onto something. Wealthfront creates automated investment portfolios of diversified, low-cost index funds personalized just for you. And it's really easy to open an account. To open your account, all you need is three minutes and $500 to invest. There are no manual trades, no watching the stock market, and no more managing the details. Wealthfront's technology does it for you based on inputs Based on inputs you control. Wealthfront reduces unnecessary risk, which is also quite nice. Their portfolios are made to weather long-term market conditions. They can even help you lower your taxes. I am not a person who necessarily plays the market, uh, so some of these words uh, make me feel anxious, but then the other words immediately make me feel calm. And I'm guessing that's what they're going <laughs> for, because, yeah, stocks and stock markets and things rising and falling can sometimes be a little bit uh, nerve-wracking, but I, I will say a, div- a portfolio of diversified low-cost index funds sounds good to me. Why not? Oh, it sounds great to me. And, and right now, you can visit Wealthfront.com slash TSS to get your first $5,000 managed for free for life. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash TSS to start growing your savings. Go to Wealthfront.com slash TSS and get started today. Thank you very much to Wealthfront for sponsoring today's episode and making me feel slightly less nervous. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Thank you very much to 1010 for sponsoring this episode. You may have read about 1010 in the New York Times or Forbes. We're excited to tell you about it. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring, launching exclusively on January 18th at BlueNile.com. And when they're gone, Taylor, they are gone. They are gone. We all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic and is a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's been beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. If you're making 2021 plans or looking for a unique and meaningful way to celebrate Valentine's Day, you're definitely going to want to check this out. Again, this exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings launches on January 18th, and you can preview it exclusively at BlueNile.com. So thank you very much to 1010 for sponsoring this episode of The Total Soccer Show. Joe Lowry, we've talked about two players. Whom should we talk about next? Our third player, and my second player, is Gio Reyna. He was, he was one of the guys of you him. used in the intro. We know he's good on the ball, right? We know he can do a lot of great stuff on the half turn, or, or at least that's one of my favorite parts of his game. He's great at getting in between the lines and advancing the ball. 
But one thing I noticed from him, starting and playing the entire game for Borussia Dortmund's in the for Borussia Dortmund in their 3-1 win over RB Leipzig, Reyna is really, really strong. Right? In the in this game, he did so many things on the ball or trying to get on the ball and muscling off opposing players. He did so many things that I started I started keeping tally marks. And and I want to zero in on three specific tally marks because they all came up against a particular yeah. uh, domestic <laughs> domestic teammate of his, if you want to say it that way. Um, this is where we say that I will be the one discussing Tyler Adams, and I feel like yeah. this is a personal shot, Joe. I feel like you're making it personal here. Bring it, Taylor. I'm ready. In, in the third <laughs> minute, in the third minute, and this is my my moment, although I could go through a couple other ones, but they're all very closely related. So this is the one that I picked to really dig into. In the third minute, Roman Berkey, Dortmund goalkeeper, hits the ball up the field, for Dortmund towards the center circle. So Erling Holland is waiting there and he gets his head on the ball and heads it over to Dortmund's left side. The left side at the beginning of this game especially is exactly where Gio Reyna was attacking for Dortmund. And that's also where Tyler Adams was defending for Leipzig. I won't get in too much to the positional details for Adams. I'll let you do that later. But they're going up head to head in, in large stretches of this, in large stretches of this game, I would say. So it's Adams versus Reyna. The ball comes off of Holland's head, bounces over to that left side, as I said, and they go at it. If you'd asked me before the game, I would have bet money that Tyler Adams would win a 1v1 physical duel with Gio Reyna. 100%. And I'm really glad, Taylor, that no one asked me that before the game. Right. Because if I'd bet money on it, I would have lost my money. Uh, on this play, Gio Reyna muscles Adams away from the ball, and Gio Reyna gets on it and secures possession for Dortmund. Reyna did that three times in this game, just against Tyler Adams, and man, I was not expecting that. If you'd asked me, again, I would have bet Adams every time. We know Tyler Adams is not a physical slouch. Gio Reyna was getting in there. He was getting down, moving players out of the way, winning the ball, winning possession for Dortmund, and I was not expecting to see that. No, and like it's not 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 even just that there was like a fifty fifty and like Adams didn't win that one. It was at times when Reyna was like trying to bring the ball down under pressure, like on the sideline or on the touchline or under like just trying to make sure that there wasn't a counterattacking opportunity. And in those moments, you so often see the player just hoof it long or like just have a heavy touch or a little bit of a mistake or let it go out of bounds because they don't want to cede possession in a really risky area. And yet in those moments, that was when Reyna seemed to be most up for the challenge, most up to kind of ride those and make something happen. I think he does the same thing in the second half and creates some chances off of it. But I'm with you that I, I kind of thought that was not necessarily a vulnerability in Reina's game, but not necessarily a strength either. And I would come away from this game thinking he's a lot scrappier than I expected. I will say Adams, like, yes, uh, Jaden Sancho scores uh, on the left side when Adams is defending on the right. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I would say for the most part, Reina caused Tyler Adams more problems than Jaden Sancho, which is also not something I necessarily would have expected. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Reyna was difficult for Adams, who I thought overall did a, a decent job defending on that side, although maybe not in every single moment of this game. Reyna was hard for him to handle, and I think I think his strength is a big part of that, and I also think Reyna's strength is important because of of how it fits in with the national team. And I know, I, I don't want this to be too much of a stretch here, and so I want, I want us to kind of think about the national team and, and Dortmund playing at the same time. Uh, with Zach Steffen and, and Roman Berkey both playing that long ball into the center circle up to the number nine, it's not going to be Erling Holland for for the United States, but that would be that would be great if it could be, but it's not. Uh, it'll be up to that number nine, and and there's a good chance that, that that long ball happens from goalkeeper into the number nine. Baralter's not going to have his team play out every single time from the back. Zach Steffen or whoever's playing in goal is still going to move that ball long forward into the attacking half or in that center circle area. 
those plays are going to happen. And so the number nine could theoretically move the ball out to Reyna's side, whether he's playing on the right side or the left side. It doesn't really matter. Having Gio Reyna be able to win that that second ball down from a number nine, knocked down or knocked laterally to the winger position and to whichever side Gio Reyna is playing on, that's incredibly advantageous, right? When the United States is not going to move the ball methodically and slowly out of the back, they still need to win the ball. Just because they play it long doesn't mean they don't want to regain possession. And having guys like Gio Reyna who can help win those second balls, especially in CONCACAF, especially when the fields are not going to be not going to be pristine when you're playing away from home, those are, are really important qualities that you want in your in your attacking playmaker kind of guys. Absolutely. And and I would go back to your point of like they're not always gonna build out of the back, but even sometimes when they do, let's say Zach Stefan takes a restart, takes it short, plays it to John Brooks, Brooks to Miazga, Miazga back to Stefan, like that that is also a tactic of you move it around that back line, you make your opponent send some numbers forward, maybe they start to cheat five yards, ten yards, maybe a couple more people commit forward, then you go long, and now it's less of a they've got all their numbers back and they're packed in there, but now you've created a little bit more spacing, they're a little bit more stretched maybe now it's a 1v1 with that number nine as opposed to a 1v2 or something like that and then absolutely to your point if there is that number nine challenging for it maybe making making another 50 50 in the channel i kind of trust Gio Reyna more than i thought i would at this point to fight for that ball to potentially bring it down and handle that challenge and then create from there and yeah to your final point like that is such an important thing when you're dealing with CONCACAF opposition that isn't always going to come after you or isn't always going to make that easy to be able to sort of give yourself a foothold and allow people to build around you is such an important thing. And I have a lot of faith that Giorana can do that, which again is very big progress. It's very exciting to see him do these things. It was unexpected for me, but now I'm pretty confident that Giorana is going to be a player in those, those one V one battles or those second ball battles for the United States down the line. I also do think Taylor, unless you have anything else on Giorana, I also think Adams is going to be a player in those moments, even though he didn't always come out on the right end of those battles in RB Leipzig's 3-1 loss to Dortmund. What did you see? What are your moments from Tyler Adams in that game? Well, first I will say he didn't come off like the best in some of those. He also, I think when he got into it with Reyna at one point, Reyna did seem to be the more like, come on, man, like keep it going. Yeah. Adam seemed to be the aggrieved party there. Reyna seemed to be the, the crafty veteran who knew how to navigate that one. Uh, but I do think with everything we've said, I, I have some like sympathy for Tyler Adams because I think he was literally and figuratively being asked to do a lot of different things in this game. And so sometimes when he was losing those challenges to Reyna, sometimes it was just Reyna's superior strength or positioning, but other times it was also because Adams was marking somebody and then Reyna was also free and he had to try to kind of split the difference and figure out how best to do that. And I think he had a lot of thankless tasks in this game. So my two moments that stand out are... Like, basically, it's the build-up to Dortmund's first goal and their third goal. Because in both of those, I think it's it's the strange thing sometimes of the person who is closest to the the attacker who scores is the one who tends to get posterized it's they're the one who gets blamed and oh they should have been closer they should have done better why didn't they make a play there and that is sometimes the case that it's that person's mistake their fault they didn't see something it is also oftentimes the case that it's that person who saw it the fastest reacted to it most quickly was just also the furthest away and other players could have done better and i kind yeah. of think that's what happens here for tyler adams that for the Jaden Sancho goal, for example, it's basically Erling Holland being a freak of nature, <laughs> and then Opamakano, I think, being too aggressive, trying to get to Marco Royce, who then plays in Holland, and now it's a three v two, 
Adams goes central to try to deal with Marco Royce. Marco Royce then has that great little flick to Jaden Sancho, who scores. Adams has to try to come across and make a play on Sancho, and that's where he gets posterized because it looks like it's just this like half-hearted attempt to get there, and he just can't. But he is basically covered 50 yards in a very short amount of time, having thought, we've got this throw in lockdown. But then he drops in, he covers the man he needs to as best he can, and it's just an incredible flick from Marco Royce to make this happen. But if he doesn't do that, if Marco Royce maybe takes it in the direction his body was going, I think Adams is able to make a play and sort of shut it down. So even in conceding a goal, I thought he did well. It's just that Jaden Sancho is wide open at the back post. And for the third goal, it was, I talked about this a little bit on the weekend review, but at that point, Tyler Adams, I think playing in his third position, because he starts as a wing back of sorts, I think in the second half, Angelino is given a lot more license to go forward. So Adams becomes more of a just sort of out and out fullback. And then when Sabitzer comes off, he moves to the middle and is basically the lone, like holding midfielder of sorts. And whenever Leipzig go pressing, whenever they commit forward, they commit five men forward to try to do something, but oftentimes got passed through. And then Dortmund had 6v5 or 5v5 attacking, and it was up to Tyler Adams to sort of put out the fire. And that's essentially what happens for the third goal is he's just trying to mark three different people. And the like the rapidness of the passing move from Dortmund makes that impossible. But I think it was just interesting to see him put into these spots. In my opinion, it was interesting to see him put into spots that was pretty clearly Nagelsmann being like, I need somebody who can handle five different responsibilities at once and trusting Adams to do that. Though Dortmund get the win, though they score three goals, nothing I saw makes me think that Nagelsmann isn't going to trust Tyler Adams to continue to do that, which can be a negative because he's not doing one dedicated thing. But to me, it's also positive that he's developing so much in so many different areas that he's able to do a lot of different stuff. It's kind of similar to the Weston McKinney talk we had while he was at Schalke. Not specifically you and I, but a lot of people had about mm-hmm. McKinney playing right back one game and playing center back the next game and playing attacking midfield the next game and striker and then central defensive midfield and then just normal central midfielder. He played so many different spots and we're getting a very light version of that. I think with Adams under Julian Nagelsmann, he's playing right wing back and staying wide. And, and then last week he played right back and he moved inside a lot and played that Berhalter-esque inverted right back kind of role. And then, as you said, Taylor, in the second half and and later on in the second half in this game, he moves in and plays as the lone central defensive midfielder. We're getting so many different looks at Tyler Adams doing so many different things. And I don't know if that's a good thing, if that's a bad thing, if that helps him develop mentally and continues to improve his spatial awareness and, and positioning, or if that hurts him because he's not getting looks all the time at the number six, which we think is where Berhalter wants him, or he's not getting consistent looks as an inverted right back or as a right wing back. I still wonder, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And I think ultimately it's going to have to be smarter people than I to decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for Adams (laughs) or or whether it was good or bad for McKenney when he was playing with Schalke. But it is so interesting. And I turn that question over and over in my head. And uh, just in case anybody was wondering, I still have not, uh, not come to an answer. I haven't fully either. I will say this, though. The way Leipzig play, how quickly they press, how fast they want that ball to move, and how much everybody has to be on the same page, I, I, I it minimizes my concern about Adams being a right back or right wing back and then sometimes a midfielder because wherever he is, he has to make – decisions quickly he has to know what he's doing before he receives the ball certainly when he's on the ball and even after the ball is gone he's like 
it just seems like even if he's at full wing back, he's going to be like moving. He's going to be dropping inside or moving inside. He's going to be dropping back in support. There's just a lot of little things that I think he would need to do that will translate if Greg Berhalter continues to use him as that number six. And his like uh, vocalness is one of them as well. I saw him talking a lot with Orban, Halstenberg on occasion, Danny Olmo even, just reminding them, like, hey, you got to be here. This ball needs to be there. That's got to be a little bit faster. At one point, I think Orban takes three touches to play him a ball. Adams receives it, turns, plays it up the field, turns back, and you can see him giving like a 3-1, 3-1. Like, you don't need three touches there. And just those moments make me happy as well because it's a sign that he's taking on more of that leadership position. He's internalizing what he's being asked to do such that then when other people don't do it, he feels the need to correct it. I like that he is he is sort of growing in that way and taking on that more of a an important figure uh, within the team role. So I would not – Hate if it was maybe Sabitzer and Adams starting the next next game. Kevin Campbell, I don't know if he's back. I can't remember if it was suspension or injury. Uh, so if he is back, my assumption would be it would be Sabitzer and Campbell. But I would like to see Tyler Adams getting more minutes starting in the middle. But I think Tyler Adams playing for Leipzig at all is definitely a positive for the national team. I asked you, or are we? I guess we talked about the the varied positioning question and whether that's mm-hmm. a good thing or a bad thing. I've got another question that I think about, and I want to pose it to you. In the second half of this game, Adams was playing as a number six, right? He was the lone midfielder yep. after Sabitzer went out. And and he did some really good things in that role. He he was a very huge asset in their counterpressing. And he was big in trying to, mm-hmm. to plug the holes and to not allow Dortmund to just run right over them in transition. It didn't work every time, but I don't think that's on Adams. I think he excels in those moments, and he did at least once or twice in the second half stop some really important Dortmund counterattacks and recycle possession for Leipzig. But also when he plays at that number six spot and and when Dortmund were pressing in this game and looking for that third goal and even looking for that second goal in the second half, Adams, I thought, looked suspect when he had the ball. And and I saw this specifically in the buildup to Dortmund's second goal. Adams lost the ball while under pressure in the middle of the field. Dortmund passed it around a little bit. And then it was Jaden Sancho on the left who found Erling Holland in the box for the header and then Leipzig go down two to nothing. That play started, in my mind, with Tyler Adams losing the ball while under pressure as the lone defensive midfielder. Is that concerning for you from a national team standpoint, knowing that the United States is going to face pressure at times, not in every game, but at times? Do you worry about Tyler Adams on the ball? Because to be honest, I I do. Well, let me ask you this, and if you don't remember, that's fine, because I don't remember. I remember that sequence. I know what you're talking about. And I went back and watched it. <laughs> like my my brain is apparently mush at this point. But I remember going back and watching. And was it was it a an okay pass to him? And did he have support around him to find a passing outlet? As you recall, uh, I'd have to go back and rewatch. I don't remember when I did watch it. And this is we're really mm-hmm. getting deep here. I don't remember thinking, "Wow, Tyler Adams had no options," or, yeah. or "Wow, that entry pass was really bad." That's not to say it wasn't. Um, but I'd lean towards saying no, but we can solve this after we stop recording and, and we'll find out just like our listeners probably already yeah. do know. No, I mean, I, I, I don't know if anybody is like remembering tiny specific moments aside <laughs> from us and scuffed and a few other folks. Right. Uh, but I know it doesn't really concern me because I think like if, if it were any issue, if it were a consistent flaw in his game, I think we would know about it. I think it would be a thing that we talk about a lot more that maybe Burhalter would or Nagelsmann would or we wouldn't see him utilized in those positions. Maybe if he continues to not be played centrally, even when there are absences, even if, let's say, Sabitzer can't play the next game and Campbell can't play, if he's still at right back, then maybe that means that it's a thing that Nagelsmann doesn't fully trust. But for me right now, I think... 
for the I think his usual game is pretty quick and clean and doesn't necessarily get robbed in possession when he does it doesn't tend to be in dangerous areas for Leipzig it tends to be moments when he can try something like he does later in the game with the, the quick one two and the shot that's deflected I think that's where he tries stuff more often so for me I don't have as much of a concern and that's you bring up a really good point with with Nagelsmann if if Julian Nagelsmann trusts him and puts him in the middle that probably means that I should trust him and feel comfortable with him there and so that's that's an encouraging point that I hadn't thought about before I still think I am I'm more concerned about it than you are but I I don't know. Like, that doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong or, or vice versa. I just, I'm curious. And so I'm mm-hmm. interested to see how that's going to play out down the line. All right. Well, we shall continue to keep an eye on it. Uh, but for now, Joe, who did you keep your eye on this weekend? So the next player that I had my eye on, albeit somewhat briefly, was Weston McKenney, hmm. who started in Juventus's 3-1 win over Sassuolo, but came off injured in the 19th minute. This whole injury story, Taylor, I, I don't know if you read up on it or not. I did the not, speculation, you said you were doing it, and I was like, thank goodness, because I don't want to hear more about players getting hurt. The speculation actually ties right into, into my moment, the speculation about why he came off injured. For context, after the injury, McKenney jogged off the field. So he is, mm-hmm. it seems to me, and, and I am not a doctor, very, very much not a doctor, it seems to me that he's fine for the most part, and that the injury and in, in, Andrea Pirlo bringing him off was mostly precautionary. But the injury is really completely intertwined with my moment. According to Sky Sport, McKenney's injury happened uh, because he attempted a sombrero at the edge of Sassuolo's yep. box. Um, I saw that around on Twitter and I read up about it a little bit. And, and from what I watched, that actually lines up perfectly. So, <laughs> so it happened with McKenney at the edge of the box. He gets the ball and I'll detail the actual moment because this is what I want to talk about in just a second. But looking specifically at the injury, McKenney attempts a sombrero. It doesn't quite come off, but he still keeps control of the ball. So he tries to put it above an, an opposition player's head. It doesn't work, and he comes down sort of gingerly after completing his pass and creating the chance. And and he lands ever so slightly on, on one footer. Or I don't know exactly what the issue was. But then a few minutes later, he gets brought off the field. And, and just reading the sentence, McKenney picked up a muscular injury while attempting a sombrero. Mm-hmm really uh, filled me with a, a lot of joy in some weird twisted sense. <laughs> I like that as well. It it did make me feel a little bit better because also I didn't have as much concern about like a, a broken femur or a torn ACL with him doing a sombrero. Joe, we did do a Soccer 101 episode about some like moves and some terminology. For folks who are newer to the game or not familiar, what is a sombrero? Yeah, so so it's when, if you think about a nutmeg, right? The nutmeg is when you pass the ball through the opposition's legs and through through the defender's legs. A sombrero is like that, but in the air. You're not going between their legs at that point, but you're going up and over their head. So it's still that central move and it's, it's equally disrespectful, if not more so. Um, but in, in just the best way. And when you're doing, when you're thinking of it, does it like necessarily have to be the sort of rainbow motion? Can it be like, like sometimes you'll see the player like put the ball in their foot, like on their laces and scoop it over the other person's head. Does that count as a sombrero? Is it simply just that it goes over their head and then you collect it on the other side? If I get to decide, yes, it's if you get it over their head and it comes down on the other side and you are the one bringing it down on the other side. Yeah. Uh, well played to you at that point. Yeah, that, that is the, the <laughs> unwritten but official rule that similar like a nutmeg doesn't count if you put it through the person's legs and then they turn and just take the ball. Like exactly. then you've just gone for that, but it hasn't come to anything. Yeah, in then which you just case lost you the ball. Success- yeah, exactly. So so I think I'm with you that it has to be. Over and then collected. Otherwise, it's an attempted sombrero. And based on the injury, I'm assuming it was attempted but not successful. 
Correct. Yeah. That was okay. that was a very important topic for us to have discussed and agreed on. I'm glad we're on the same side of the sombrero discussion. Oh yeah. I feel I feel a lot better. I didn't even know I needed to worry about that, but now I'm not worried I mean, at all. It could have torn us apart. We, we don't really know. <laughs> Forgive me, Joe. I was I was contemplating the realities of sombreros. Do we know the severity? Do we know how long he's likely to be out? I think I read that he's like likely to be back for next weekend's game against Inter, but I wanted to confirm with you. I have not read anything about the severity, um, which makes me think it's not incredibly severe. Yeah. And and from what you just said, I think we should be pretty optimistic. Okay. If not next week, it, it doesn't seem like it'll be long. Does him attempting a sombrero, like, it, it's 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 such a, first of all, it's like, it feels like a Weston McKinney thing. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. Why not? I, I, I'm going to try things. But it also, like, to do that for Juve... I always go to if you're like new to a club, if you want to show that you belong, there's something to be said for just keeping it very simple, keeping the ball moving, not making mistakes, not getting caught, and then you don't stand out in a negative way. I think it's what Pulisic did at both Dortmund and Chelsea when he came through. I think Reina kind of the same last season. And McKinney, I think, was kind of doing that. And now we have a scenario in which he's scoring volleys and attempting <laughs> sombreros. And it feels very much likely that he is uh, feeling confident in Juve. It kind of feels like McKenney is a guy who you can't contain for long. Mm-hmm. And, and that might not always be a great thing, but man, I've got a <laughs> smile on my face just thinking about it, right? I got a picture of him showing up for training in my head and he's, you know, he's, he's tired of playing those one twos and he's tired of, of picking up the bags or whatever it is that he has to do at U of A. And, and he's ready to play, right? He's ready to, to neck some people. He's ready to, to really get after it. And I think we are starting to see that at times. I still don't think that overshadows his, his subtle movement and his quick passing and a lot of the things that he still is doing that fit into what you're talking about. But yeah, I'd be lying if I said we weren't seeing some really skillful moments, whether they come off or not from Weston McKinney. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I like it. I like it a lot. I also <laughs> like today's sponsors. We've got five more Americans still to be discussed. But right now we're going to talk about Magic Spoon. Uh, my wife ordered Magic Spoon this past week. It arrived. Uh, I had not had it. I think I've only had it like once, very, like a small box as a sampler. This time I've had now the the kind of like fruity one and the frosted one, and they are awesome. And they are like legitimately a very nice way to start your day. You throw some fruit in there too. It, it feels like suddenly you're being incredibly healthy, and you are because there's zero <laughs> sugar, there's 11 grams of protein, only three net carbs. Uh, I'm a big fan of Magic Spoon. Did did you and Margaret have a favorite of the two that you tried? Uh, I think I went fruity because I am a child, and I think she went frosted because she likes sugar. <laughs> that's that's my answer. But like they they don't taste exactly like like you like it's they're not trying to do an impression of Fruit Loops or Frosted Flakes or something like that. They're they're giving you just very good cereal that has that sort of familiar name, the familiar concept, but still tastes very good and doesn't feel like you're eating something that is going to make your teeth fall out in the next thirty minutes. Yeah, that's a total win, right? I think that's the yep. issue with so many other brains of cereal. Mm-hmm. You eat it, and and that's great, but then you realize, what did I just eat? What was in that? Uh, I probably shouldn't have eaten that, and I think with Magic Spoon, <laughs> that is one of the best parts about Magic Spoon, I should say. There, there aren't You're not left asking yourself those no. questions after you eat it. As you said, zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, only three net grams of carbs in each serving. 
it tastes amazing and it's it's honestly too good to be true but it's not it is true. well here's where they make up for it uh because we're, we're asked to talk about our personal experience i will be honest and say uh the folks at magic spoon are very intent on people who are not supposed to open the boxes not opening the boxes because those things are sealed and it is <laughs> it looks like a gorilla tried to open our magic spoon box like it's like i fully ripped off the top of one so they're very secure but once you're able to get through that then it's worth it i feel like they just know how good it is so they make you work extra hard to get it uh so i do appreciate that and i do appreciate that they're making it easy for our listeners to uh try magic spoon for themselves if you go to magicspoon.com slash tss you can grab a variety pack and try it today be sure to use the promo code tss at checkout to get free shipping my wife did not uh and magic spoon is so confident in their product it's backed with a 100 happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked Man, Magic Spoon believes in cereal safety. They believe in happiness guarantees. (laughs) And if you go to magicspoon.com slash TSS and use Mm -hmm. that promo code, they also believe in in great deals, Taylor. You can save $5 with that address. What What an absolute bargain. There we are. So we thank Magic Spoon for that bargain and for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Thank you as well to Four Sigmatic for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Uh, this is Taylor doing this read solo. Four Sigmatic is a wellness company that is well known for its delicious mushroom coffee. Yes, you heard that right. Their mushroom coffee is real organic fair trade, single origin Arabica coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. So that might seem like a strange concept. And the first question you're probably asking is, does it taste like mushrooms? I can guarantee it does not. It tastes just like the coffee you love. It brews dark, nutty, and tasty tastes incredible. The idea, though, is that you're taking your normal coffee that you love so much, but you're adding little other things to it to give it a new boost, a new oomph that you might need. For example, that lion's mane is going to help you focus more so you can get even more done than you would with just normal coffee. And it's also easy on the gut. It doesn't leave you with a jittery feeling. It's not going to give you that midday crash. It smooths everything out. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic right now on their best-selling mushroom coffee, but this is just for Total Soccer Show listeners. You can get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash TSS. This offer is only for Total Soccer Show listeners and is not available on their regular website. You'll save up to 40% and get free shipping, so go right now to foursigmatic F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A atic.com slash tss and fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee thank you very much to four sigmatic for sponsoring today's episode now we've just finished talking about weston mckinney i wish i had a serial player so i could continue the italian tradition but since i don't let's talk anderlecht instead let's talk matt miazga at anderlecht he played Ooh. the full game for Anderlecht in a 1-0 loss to O.H. Leuven. Uh, uh, Anderlecht now fifth in the table. Leuven now fourth in the table. He did pretty well, uh, in as well as a center back can do in a loss. Uh, the goal, not his fault. It was a penalty that he 
had no part in aside from being roughly in the vicinity. Uh, and for the most part, I thought had a very good game. He did sort of the Matt Miazga things. He challenged for 50-50s, uh, both when attacking corners, but also defending. He was good in possession. He was good in his distribution for the most part and kept good positioning. The thing I want to spotlight is around the 72nd minute. There's a thing that I, I'm coming to think of as like a Matt Miazga trait, um, and it's one I'm going to keep an eye on, but it's when he is vying for either like goal kicks or like just clearances. And if there's a physical defender in this case, it was, uh, Soma Henri, uh, for Leuven is the number nine there. It's backing, he's backing into Miazga. And in my mind, it's a very Matt Miazga thing of lets the attacker like engage. Then they sort of have this like grappling match that is not a foul. It's not illegal. It's a thing you do when you're tussling for the ball. But it's almost like Miazga is so good at focusing on some of that upper body contact that as he's doing it, he then pokes a foot around and just pokes the ball away before it even gets there. And I've seen him do that twice with the national team, and he did it in this game as well. I hope I'm doing a good job of describing it, but it's essentially instead of getting into a 50-50 where he's fighting for a header, certainly he'll do that sometimes. But if the situation allows for it, I'd like that he uses his physicality to almost distract to then just get a foot in and poke it away and you don't even have a 50-50. So that was one moment I really liked from him. Uh, Joe, I don't know if you've ever noticed that from him before, but if you're worried about Matt Miazga in the air, you don't need to be, at least not in this game. No, that's a that's a good thing, right? I think about Matt Miazga as, well, this is just my own tendency, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to assume that other people are with me on this. I think about Matt Miazga with the ball first, right? I think okay. about him on the ball at right center back, or if he's playing on the side of his weak foot, that's fine as well. I think about him trying to break lines with his passing and find attackers in between the opposition's defensive and midfield lines. I don't really think about Matt Miazga defensively. Okay. And so hearing about his ability mm-hmm. to to be crafty and hearing about his ability to make things happen when he doesn't have the ball, that's a good thing for me. And I, I don't think about his aerial ability too much. I don't think about his his recovery defense yeah. too much, although after the November window... That does come to mind occasionally because I remember him getting hosed on that far side. I think it was against Wales. Yep. Might again, it might have been against Panama, excuse me. But I, I think about that a little bit. But I'm glad to hear that Miazga has some tricks in his bag to, to anchor a back line. I think it was definitely Wales, right? Because Oh, no, I guess you're right. There was two games there. But yeah, I, remember I remember him having some issues, with, with especially when Daniel James came on and had a little bit of the pace. The thing that I would say, and to you talking about Matt Miazga in possession and distribution, you mentioned earlier about like the importance of getting the ball out from under your feet. And if you don't do that quickly, sometimes it can be problematic. He wasn't punished for it in this game, and he did it less as the game went on. But in the first 20 minutes... Uh, one thing I did kind of notice, and I'm wondering if this is a, a normal thing for him. It's a thing that I'll kind of like pay attention to. Again, that's what we want from this show is little things to keep an eye on and see if that's a one-off or if it's a consistent thing. And if it's a co- consistent thing, is it positive or negative? In this case, what I saw was his first touch would either stay right by him like right underneath his feet, or it would go back the way the ball came, and then he would turn and change direction. So if it was coming Mm. from that left center back and he was receiving with his right foot, it would either be he would kind of shape to receive from the left center back, receive with his right foot, turn his body, and then take it with his left – 
or he would go back towards the center back and then have to turn fully and go the other way. As the game went on, he started to play more on the half turn. He started to open up and let the ball roll across and then take it with him. But those opening ones, it was just a little sticky. It was a little clunky. And then it led to him having to take a touch and then another touch. And then he opens up. And by then he's got his head up, but it doesn't keep the ball moving as as freely as I think Vincent Company, his manager, would have liked. Certainly not as freely as Greg Berhalter is going to want. So those opening 20 minutes, I don't know if it was a problem for Anderlecht, if it was a normal thing for him, if it was just a one-off thing. But it was something that didn't I didn't love to see some of his, his first touch just be a little uncoordinated, a little too tight, then a little too loose. He gets better as the game goes on. But that was one thing that stood out to me. As you were making really great points about, you know, why you should take touches in, in a directional fashion, why you should open up your hips and receive the ball across your body. All I could think about is that I completely forgot that Matt Miazga played for Vincent Company. Yep. <laughs> uh, maybe that's just me, but that, uh, that shook me a little bit to my core just a minute ago. That's, yep. that's a good spot for him it to be. It really is. That's honestly. the thing. And he, and he did say, I think there was a quote from him this week that was doing the rounds, essentially saying that he's very happy at Anderlecht. I think he would not mind if that move were made permanent, but it's up to Chelsea and Anderlecht. The, the sort of generic, yes, I kind of want this move. I'm okay if it doesn't happen, but it's up to them. Uh, but it does seem like he's enjoying his time there. And I, and I will say to your point, Vincent Company being who he is, there, there are definitely worse players for a developing center back to play under, uh, underneath. And I think he's going to learn a lot of positive things from Vincent Company. And I would assume also what we've come to know is he's such an important or was such an important locker room figure for Man City. I also kind of hope that that transfers over because we've seen Miazga certainly be vocal and a, and a vocal physical leader. Uh, Diego Lainez knows that. Uh, but I, I like the idea of that being fostered and him being even more of a central figure in the locker room for both uh, club and country. Weston McKenney playing for Pirlo, Matt Miazga playing for Vincent Company. Man, yeah. we're uh, we're cranking out the we live the players the moving abroad to play <laughs> under some real legends here. Uh, do you have any more of those with your next player? I I do not. No, oh, not necessarily. Fine. My next guy is Eunice Musa, who came off the bench in the oh, second just Eunice half. Musa. Okay, cool. just Eunice Musa. Yeah, <laughs> he's not playing for necessarily a player of Pirlo or Company's stature. But uh, but Yunus Musa came off the bench for Valencia in second half stoppage time. So very, very, very short appearance for Yunus Musa in Valencia's one nothing win over the weekend. But but even in five, six minutes of play, Yunus Musa made a ridiculous impact. And I'm going to get right into the moment that I'm talking about. It's a short appearance, so there's no reason to delay. It's in the 94th minute. Valencia win the ball on the right side of their own half. So they're winning it. Musa is playing his traditional traditional for Valencia at least, right-sided midfield role in a 4-4-2. So he comes on and slots right into that spot, and Musa recovers the ball that Valencia won in their half, and he's immediately put under pressure by an opposing player. So the pressure gets to Musa a little bit, and he takes kind of a sloppy touch towards the sideline, but he recovers and starts to put together a downright ridiculous run up the sideline. Listeners, if you haven't seen this, I, I beg of you, go watch it on Twitter. It looks like it's Gareth Bale, but on the right side, it's it's Real Madrid Gareth Bale. I'm not I'm not exaggerating here. It's Yunus Musa who gets on the ball, not Gareth Bale, although no, that'd be cool. It's Yunus Musa <laughs> on the right side of the field, and in his first touch has put him in a difficult spot, right? His is actually I think it might have been his second touch. But his his first couple of touches have put him in a difficult a difficult place, and he's up against the sideline. And so he sort of turns upfield. And bends his run such that he runs out of bounds. Oh, yeah. And he takes a big touch right before he runs out of bounds. Gets around two 
Valladolid defenders and, and moves forward into the attacking half, then bodies one of those same defenders off the ball after he catches up to it and gets back on the field. And then he squares the ball across the field into the, the middle channel right at the top of the box for a teammate, and he squares it right on a dime. The teammate is wide open, and, and his teammate has the shot saved. And so it doesn't come to anything, but it's a ridiculous chance made by a ridiculous run that shows just how scary good Yunus Musa is. So what does that, like, does that change anything for where you want to see him play for the national team? Or do you like the idea of him just doing that centrally for the U.S.? I like the idea of him doing it centrally. He's still not a winger, right? And I don't want to lose sight of that. He's still much more comfortable. Greg Berhalter, I think, was spot on. He's still much more comfortable, to my eye, playing in the middle and using those same attributes that I just detailed. His speed, his strength, his his composure with the final ball. He's comfortable doing those things on the wing. He's not really comfortable taking players on 1v1. And so I think he's better suited to play in the middle of the field and still burst past defenders. We saw it in the Wales game, right, back in November. Him, him, you know, turning a shoulder and then bursting forward through the middle of the field. Him, him muscling a player off the field like Gio Reyna did to Tyler Adams for Dortmund and Leipzig. And we saw him be composed on the ball as well. All of those attributes were just reinforced to me and, and reinforced in my mind watching Yunus Musa on this play as an 18-year-old. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna be Debbie Downer for a moment and ask you, like, have you seen anything from Musa? Has anything stood out, or maybe that's a thing that we can keep an eye on, that, like, needs to develop that you don't, like, necessarily fully love yet? Like, I know there are little things here and there that you mentioned, but is there anything in particular that you think, oh, that's got to be a little bit better? Like, is it those 1v1 take-ons? I think that would be a really big area of improvement. If he could develop in that area out wide then he would become even more versatile than he already is. Because sure, he can play out wide now, especially on the right. But because he lacks that 1v1 ability, he's not much of a threat out there all the time. So if he develops his 1v1 ability to attack and, and get an opposing fullback going uh, on their back on their back heels and, and really forcing them back into their own half, that could be great. I also think, at least from this play, there's room to improve his first initial touch on the ball. Although I haven't really noticed that being an issue in the past. So I don't want to overreact too much to that little moment at the beginning of this run. I also think there are opportunities for him to develop his his passing. So far from what I've seen of Yunus Musa, it's it's a lot of simple passes. It's I'm I'm trying to continue to to get comfortable in the lineup and I want to keep getting minutes kind of passes, but not necessarily the the through balls to play an attacker in behind the back line kind of passes. And so if he if he can add that that Harit element to his game that we talked about at the top of the show with those through balls to find a number nine breaking in behind the back line, then he's just on another level. All right. I like that. I like that we have specific things to keep an eye on and see how he develops. Um, I'm okay with him not playing out wide on the right because I think we have lots of other players that can do that, including the next one we're going to talk about, unless you have more to say about Yunus Musa. No, take it away for your right-sided attacker, Taylor. I will. It's Timothy Weah, uh, who, if you look at the starting 11 for Lille in their 1-0 win over Nîmes, uh, looks to have been playing as a right wing back in a kind of 3-4-2-1, a 3-4-3. But because it was Nîmes who are bottom of Ligue 1 and it's Lille who are currently third uh, with this win, I think the idea was that we're going to keep a back three, we're going to keep that midfield two to kind of shield that back three, and then our wing backs are going to be basically wingers. Uh, that said... A lot of really good defensive work from Timothy Weah. That's the thing that really did stand out to me. It's not a specific moment. Uh, I do have a specific moment for him. But just generally speaking, what I kept seeing uh, from Weah in this game was just a lot of 
he's sprinting forward when there's a counterattack on, and then he's sprinting back to be in his defensive position he needs to be. That's not meaning he's going all the way back to play in a back five, but he routinely covered the areas he needed to, cut off the options uh, for Neem, and limited what they were able to do. So I thought his defensive awareness was excellent. The attacking side of things, not quite as strong. And I don't think that that was really his fault. Uh, it seems like Lille are focused on attacking through Jonathan Okone, the number 10. Uh, and he, when he gets the ball, I think he wants to kind of keep it central. He wants to do a similar thing to what Harit was doing for Schalke's goals of drive at the, uh, at the defense and ideally pull out one or two defenders or just open up space, make people make decisions that then allow for other opportunities for other players. But what I don't see from him is him cutting it back and playing it wide. It tends to be more central and then trying to open up space there. So for Timothy Weah, unless he's making interior runs, which he does a very good job of making these sort of disguised late arriving sprints to the back post or to like the the penalty spot. But if he's not doing that, he's sort of is isolated out wide. And I think in those moments, it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to maybe overcommit or drift central. Wea didn't do that. And then when he does have opportunities, uh, the one that stood out to me was in the 69th minute. He does get the ball out wide. And it is from Okone sort of coming under pressure. He just, I think it's one of those, like, I'm playing it to Timothy Wea to hopefully buy some time because I've got two men on me. But then one of them goes to Wea, as does another. And it's kind of a sloppy pass. It's a little bit bouncing. And Wea is able to, to control it, bring it down, hold off both of those defenders, and essentially turn them so that he draws a foul. They end up pulling him back because he is turning them and getting into an attacking position. And I think that stood out to me so much. Maybe I'm like I'm looking for silver linings because it is another thing where like if I had just watched this game, I probably don't notice Timothy Weah as much. But because I'm looking at him and expecting him to be attacking force and seeing him be defensive. I then worry like, oh, has he switched off? And to see this one moment where it's like, oh, no, he's got the ball and he tried something and he drew a foul and he created, it made me really optimistic in a game where he otherwise didn't do much that like, not in a bad way, not in a good way. It was just like, yeah, he was there. He did what he needed to do. They got the win. Nobody really covered themselves in glory. But those little moments do make me happy. And then Timothy Weah being on the field at all and trying stuff at all also makes me very happy. Timothy Weah totally seems to be the kind of guy who who would do nothing or who could do nothing on the yeah, ball for 89 minutes. Yep. And then it's it's the 90th minute of the game and he does something ridiculous that you you don't expect but at the same time you 100% expect it, right? Yep. He seems like a guy who who could come off the bench for the national team and he's done this as recently as the end of 2020 and come on and start combining with somebody and come on and, and start to to make the game look really easy all of a sudden and in a way that it hadn't for the rest of the game before he entered the field or before he he decided to really start putting his his mark on the game. Tim Weah is one of the most skillful players in the pool. He's a guy who can truly impact an attack, and I'm really glad he's he's actually starting to get minutes again yeah. in Liga because that wasn't something we could have said even a couple of months ago. No, it was not. And so yeah, and especially with it being it's not even a like, oh, there's been turmoil, they're mid-table, like, so they're just trying different stuff. That they're third. I mean, it's still Lyon, so it's Lyon top, PSG second, Lille third. You would assume that PSG will start to make up a little bit of a gap there. Um, but for now, it's exciting that he is getting minutes for a team that are at the top of the table, challenging for European places, challenging potentially for the title. Uh, yeah, that would make me very happy if he were involved in that one. So let's just let that be. Let's just stop talking about it before we jinx it, Joe. Let's talk about your <laughs> final American abroad. I've got one more thing on way. I'm going to jinx oh, it. I just want to say, I think I think he doesn't get talked about enough. I think Tim Weah, and I'm guilty of this as well, don't get me wrong. 
I think Tim Way is going to be a much bigger piece of the national team going forward than a lot of people think he is. And I think he's going to be a more regular starter than a lot of people think he is. And I, I'm excited to watch him play under Greg Berhalter at, at striker or as a, a right-sided attacker, as a left-sided attacker. He can do so many different things, and I think he's such a great, young, talented player. Uh, I think he's going to be a big impact player for the national team. Is it the versatility that you think like makes him such an exciting player? What is it that you think that makes us, not necessarily makes us underrate him or not talk about him as much, but why do you think he will be a big player? Definitely the versatility is, is part of it. Yeah, so to get specific, he can play on, on either wing. He can play in the half spaces or he can play in the middle. He can play in all five traditional vertical channels of the field. That is a way that a lot of coaches will choose to break down the field. They'll, they'll put it in those five vertical channels in a way it's comfortable in all of them. And that has so much value for any team, but especially for Greg Berhalter, who if you think about how the U.S. often attack, They'll push the fullbacks forward and wide. Those guys are occupying the wings, and then they'll bring the wingers and tuck them inside into the half spaces. Wea loves that. He's so comfortable there. Or if Berhalter is like, I need a number nine. I need a guy who can play. Josie Alfador is not, not healthy. Josh Sargent is unavailable. You know, whatever it is, Tim Wea, there's no doubt in my mind that Tim Wea could play that number nine spot, run in behind the back line, drop in at times and do that job really well because of how skillful he is. And so I think between his skill, his speed, his athleticism, and his versatility, he's a guy that Berhalter could just have so many different ideas of how to use really well. And I think those ideas are going to be very effective for the United States. So we basically have to figure out who's going to win the golden ball at the 2026 World Cup. Will it be Hoppy or Wea? <laughs> right. Yeah, that is that okay, is cool. the takeaway from everything for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, Joe, who's your final American on that note? My last American is a number nine. It's Josh Sargent, who started in Werder Bremen's 1-1 draw with Bayer Leverkusen. He came off in the 81st minute, and man, this game was rough. Bremen had 26% possession, and I want you to imagine what that looks like. That that, that looks oh like Werder Bremen sitting back in a, in a 5-3-2. So they've got a lot of defenders on the field, and this isn't like, like a, a 5-3-2-3-5-2 hybrid. And it, it is at times, because that's how soccer works. It's very fluid. But man, this thing is about as 5-3-2 as it gets, right? They're sitting back, they're sitting deep, and playing long balls up to Josh Sargent and his strike partner at the top of that formation. And it it wasn't pretty, right? It was not beautiful attacking soccer. And, and this was a tough game for Josh Sargent. To be totally fair to him, it was a very difficult opportunity. It was a lot of difficult moments for him to find space. He had very, very little space around him. He almost always had a center back on his back. And it made him, it made it hard for him to impact this game. But I still found a moment. I found a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel as I was watching him play in this match for Werder Bremen. It's in the 26th minute and, and Bremen are playing long out of the back to Josh Sargent. That should sound pretty familiar. At this point, they did that a lot. And so Sargent has to drop in into Bremen's own half to get on the ball and to get on the end of this long ball from, from their left wing back, I believe it was. And so the ball's in the air and Sargent's coming to meet it. He's dropping in. And he's got a Bayer Leverkusen center back on his back. And this center back's name is Edmund Tapsoba. And Tapsoba is 21, but he's six foot four inches tall. That's a three, that's three solid inches taller than Josh Sargent. And he's right on Sargent's back. In my, but, in my Man United career modes on FIFA for FIFA 2018 <laughs> to 21, he is consistently the center back I signed first. Yeah. He is, he's a big dude and looks pretty good in this game, in all honesty. Um, and he's right on Josh Sargent's back in this moment, a six foot four, Bundesliga defender. And, and Sargent doesn't crumble. He stays strong. He stays upright, gets on the end of the ball, 
turns towards the sideline, and then plays the ball up to his strike partner, who gets fouled. So he, he keeps his composure, he stays strong, and plays an outlet ball. Those little moments are about the brightest spots that Verda Bremen have right now. Hmm. And it's encouraging for me to see Josh Sargent not only hang strong against Bundesliga defenders, but also do something proactive and productive after he manages to stay upright in those moments. And to go back to our earlier conversation when we're talking about if the U.S. are going long, if they're forced into being a bit more direct, is that where maybe this experience with Werder Bremen does suit him? That if Berhalter needs somebody to kind of be that that target forward who can bring the ball down, who can fight for every 50-50, feels like it would be Josie Altador right now. But does that make you more confident as Josh Sargent being that like deputy if Altador can't do that? Absolutely. I think Josh okay. Sargent is better equipped to do that right now than Josie Altador. He's more mobile. Okay. He is he is fighting. If you watch Josh Sargent, the one takeaway I think that you'd have, and, and this is for listeners out there, Taylor, because I know you've seen a lot of him. When you watch Josh Sargent, the thing that I notice first and foremost is his his work rate, his motor, his engine. He's always running, and that might not always be yeah. a good thing. There might be room for smart running, but man, you cannot say about this guy that he doesn't run after the ball and he doesn't try to knock down those aerial balls and to to dispossess opposing center backs and to pressure the goalkeeper. He's moving what feels like all the time. And I think he is really well equipped to hang strong against Roman Torres and Panama or whoever else is playing against the United States in CONCACAF, any other big bodied center backs, Josh Sargent. And I feel more confident in him now than ever. I think Josh Sargent is capable of staying in and winning some of those 50, 50 balls in ways that maybe I wasn't as confident in him winning them in the past. And that that does also like to your point about his movement and the effort. That is also like a, a a big positive because if you're on a team, if you're trying to lead that line and you're only getting sort of 50-50 chances to challenge the ball at best and you're like not really getting time on the ball, it would be easy to start, you know, like ah, I'm, why make that run? Like I know it's just going to be me getting shoved off or like me trying to get on the end of it. I'll just stay in the middle. And like and you can sort of go that way and it's a slippery slope from that to now you're benched because you're no longer running so that he still has the energy and enthusiasm and the effort to keep going. And to keep fighting for all of those definitely speaks volumes about his character and his willingness to compete. So I think, okay, I'm surprised to come out of this one feeling more optimistic about Josh Sargent than I did going in. And I, I want to be clear. This was not a great game from Sargent. He, he turned the ball over, I think, more than he should have. He took too many touches at times, and we've talked about that problem before. But there are positive signs. And, and the fact that we can find positive signs even in the midst of a really a poor season for him kind of overall statistically and for Verda Bremen in the Bundesliga, that's that's a pretty good thing. All right, all right. We're going to go from one team who are not having the most fun to another team that are also not having much fun. Uh, anything else from Josh Sargent before we do that? I don't have much else on Josh Sargent. Who is your next guy there, Taylor? My final player to be discussed is one Reggie Cannon, uh, starting at right back for Boavista in their 1-1 draw with Santa Clara. Uh, Boavista, bottom of the Portuguese league, uh, I don't know how much Reggie Cannon is concerned about that because I, I, I think I did not do the digging into the Lille situation, but it still seems like he'll end up at Lille next season, maybe with Timothy Weah. So I wouldn't worry so much about their league position, but I, I did then focus in on what they were doing on the field. Uh, Cannon at right back in a 4-3-3. First of all, kind of completely forgot that uh, uh, Albert Elise is ahead of him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's the combination they got going on. So I like the Texas MLS, MLS connection uh, on the right side for Boavista. But then it it was sort of everything that you would expect from a Reggie Cannon performance uh, or what I've come to expect from him. Uh, it was, I'll spotlight two specific moments in the 21st minute, specifically 2051 for people who want to go dig up the entire game to watch this one. 
he does a thing that I think if you're Greg Berhalter, you're sort of rubbing your hands together with glee because he gets involved in the attack for Bovista. But then when there's a turnover, he doesn't lose the ball. But it's a turnover in the middle of the field, and he now has to transition back into defense pretty quickly. And because uh, Santa Clara attacking his side, he has to do so tracking uh, the wide attacker while also tracking the player more centrally who's on the ball. And he's making up ground on them, basically. He's a little bit behind. And as he does so, he sort of just cheats towards the ball carrier a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And he takes away the angle. He never makes the attacking outlet uh, out wide look attractive. It never looks like it's really on. It always looks like if they try to play that ball, he'll intercept it. But it does make the ball carrier have a little bit of indecision. He cuts inside a little bit and then Cannon reaches around him or like pokes in front of him and just pokes that ball away to a Boa Vista teammate and then they're away. But it was just the ability to get involved in the attack immediately transition backwards but be aware of a 2v1 scenario and do a really good job of cutting off the angle and winning the ball back without fouling, without having to get into a physical contest. That made me really, really happy. So that was a really good defensive aspect of what I saw from him. In terms of building out and being confident on the ball, it was a kind of two-parter. The one I'll end up talking about is in the 59th minute but before it he he gets the ball as like an outlet when they're building out Boa Vista and he turns and kind of takes a big touch down the line and I think he's trying to kind of get going really quickly and then realizes that he does not really have much around him except for opposition players and he ends up having to kind of like get the ball bring it back and then like like I think he ends up recycling it all the way back to the goalkeeper and then the next time he gets it, rather than taking this big touch down the line, he opens up really well. He sort of takes a few touches to pull the Santa Clara players in. And then as they get closer and closer and it feels like, oh, no, he's waited too long, he splits them, plays it centrally into one of his midfielders. And now there's tons of time and space for Boa Vista to build an attack. And again, this is a bottom of the table Boa Vista team who I, I've said that name so many times now. Um, but they're bottom of the table. You wouldn't expect them to sort of have that calmness on the ball to have that poise to have that problem solving and I think that he did on two different occasions like I've always been a big fan of Reggie Cannon I I, I think if we're not going to go with Tyler Adams at right back and if we're going to go with Sergio Dest at left back then he for me is the starter at least right now and nothing I saw uh, for him for a bottom of the table Portuguese team has changed that it just made me more excited for him man so I like the the offensive uh, moment that you brought out but I want to mm-hmm. go back to the defensive one that you talked about sure. because you and I, before, to peel back the curtain, mm-hmm. you and I, before we started recording, were talking a little bit about Reggie Cannon, and I said, I, I often wonder about him, and I don't think I'm quite as high on him as it seems like a lot of other people are, maybe including yourself, and the reason I cited was that I don't think he's elite at any one thing. I don't think mm-hmm. he's incredible at any one thing, and I totally want to walk that back right now, and it doesn't completely change my opinion of Reggie Cannon, but I... I love how you brought out his transition ability. And I don't really know what the term for that is, so I just kind of made that up. But like his it. his ability to shift from attack to defense or defense to attack, when Bovisha loses the ball and he has to track back and shut down those two guys, he's able to do that, right? He does that stuff on a regular basis. This isn't a one-off Reggie Cannon kind of moment. I remember seeing things like that with FC Dallas under Luchi Gonzalez, his last, Reggie Cannon's last stretch of time in Major League Soccer. Reggie Cannon would do that kind of stuff. He would flip the switch from attack to defense so quickly, quicker than anyone else on the field. And that gave him more time to execute either an offensive action, you know, if it's going one way or a defensive action, if he has to track back or to counter press his ability to, to shift and to change things in his mind and react is, is I think at least is elite. And I think that is an incredibly beneficial skill that he has to the team that he's playing on. 
Mm-hmm. And I very much appreciate that you brought that out in this moment. I appreciate you saying that. I would say like I don't think you need to feel like bad for saying he's not necessarily elite. I wouldn't say even in his transition he's necessarily elite. I think he does a lot of stuff really well. I think he's really young and isn't playing for like, you know, he's not playing for Ajax. He's not playing for Barcelona. He's playing for, I would say, a transition team as he waits for maybe his permanent team or his somewhat permanent team. Uh, so I think what I need to see from him is like still consistent performances and growth here and there. And I think that's what we're getting. That's where I'm excited about him is like, I don't think he's a lockdown defender. I think he definitely still has issues and still has room to grow. Even if he himself or he talks about himself as a crafty veteran, I think when he's playing around <laughs> 17 year olds, that's the thing that's going to happen. But I just think like he's a player who I don't, I've never really doubted was going to continue to develop. I have yeah. like the kind of faith that like, yeah, Reggie Cannon, solid, going to keep getting better. Whereas I'll be honest, like Josh Sargent, I still have that like, is he getting better? Is this helping him? I don't really know. I don't have that same concern about Reggie Cannon. So uh, he just makes me happy. Uh, Joe, I'm glad that you now are also going to award him the Ballon d'Or in 2026. Yeah, no, definitely. We're on the same page. Cool, cool, it's cool. good that we've got a three-way <laughs> tie. Is that, is that yeah, what oh, the results are in? So. It's a three-way mm-hmm. tie between Hoppy tie. And, and Tim Way, I believe it was, and now yeah. Reggie Cannon. What I was a great just moment to figure for America. It was as well. Yes, <laughs> okay. yes. It's good times. Uh, yeah, and it, and it is good times to be a U.S. national team fan because there are so many – uh, players doing so many things. Graham talked about it really briefly on the weekend review. This will be like one of my final things, ideally, hopefully. Um, was just when I like we were discussing what to talk about uh, on Saturday morning, and I was like, "Oh, and there's a hoppy hat trick." And he was like, "Wait, is he American too?" And we're like, "Yeah." And he's like, "There are too many Americans doing things." Uh, so that was such a happy moment for me as an American fan to hear somebody be like, Americans are just all over the place. It's like, hey, that's nice, as opposed to like, are you guys ever going to call it the right name? Are you guys ever going to get good at this sport? What's wrong with you? Why do you call it the wrong name? Uh, so that that makes me happy. That made me very, very happy, as did this show. Uh, Joe, any other players you want to talk about? Anything else to be discussed before we call this one a day, a close, a finished? I'll add one thing. I like that, by the way. I'll add one thing before we get out of here. It's not a specific moment, but it is a... A start from a player that I wasn't expecting to start in Europe. It's Cameron Harper, who's 19. And, and I don't blame listeners out there. If you've never heard of this guy, I don't blame you. He's 19, born in Sacramento, but he's a dual national with Scotland and the U.S. He's been in camp with Tab Ramos and the U.S. U-20s before. Tab Ramos now coaching the Houston Dynamo. So this was a little bit ago. But he's been in camp with the U.S. And, and from all that I've read, he has picked the U.S. He started for Celtic over the weekend, and that or Monday, I think it was actually. So not technically on the weekend, but he he got a start as a teenager for Celtic. Tim Way has played at Celtic before, and he used it as an opportunity to to continue to grow his career mm-hmm. and move back um, back on the continent. And so I think it's exciting, right, to see another teenager, another young American player breaking through. He's uh, a right winger or a left winger. He's right footed, but I think he played as a number nine in this game. Didn't do anything great. Came off midway through the second half. But just something to keep our eyes on. All right. I like it. I like it, Joe. Touching all the – crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, <laughs> lowercase J's, all that stuff. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for taking all the time and taking all the effort to research all of these players. Uh, I think it's a thing we'll continue to do. Maybe sometimes we won't do fully 10 just to keep it a little bit shorter uh, for ourselves and our listeners. But I enjoyed the inaugural moments we enjoyed or moments we noticed uh, from the past weekend show with you. As did I, Taylor. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, well, Joe, thank you for being here. Listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, Joe, will be back with an episode tomorrow. Is that correct, Mr. Lowry? That is correct, Taylor Rockwell. That is correct. I'm very <laughs> excited about it. And yeah, listeners, you'll get to hear more about it tomorrow. There we are. All right. Uh, but until then, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. <laughs>